Well, there's a lot of uncertainty right now. Uh, we don't know how bad it's going to get. We don't know how long it will last. And uncertainty can give rise to fear. And the evil one loves to prey on our fear. And so we can all imagine some pretty scary scenarios. I mean, I can, it's easy for me to imagine getting sick or having someone that I love die. I can imagine the economy just going into a full-on depression and taking many, many months to come out of it. Uh, losing all your retirement. Losing your job. Maybe the, maybe the world uh, has difficulty kind of continuing to keep the basic supplies available. We can, we can imagine all kinds of pretty scary scenarios, and the evil one is right there fanning the flame of our imagination and wanting us to live today in light of some future scary possibility. We don't need to be afraid. Not because God promises us that the circumstances are always going to be good. No. We don't know how bad it will get. It could get really bad. We could even die. But we don't have to be afraid because God is in control and we are in His care. And so when you feel some anxieties rising, look back and ask, has God been faithful to me in the past? And the answer is yes. And you say, is God faithful to me right now? And the answer is yes. And logic and the promises of the scripture tell us God will be faithful to us in the future. We don't need to be afraid because we are safe in God's care. Now, if you root your sense of security in good circumstances, you are at risk because circumstances can and will change. I commercial fished 14 summers out in Bristol Bay, and it was so frustrating when we put our anchor in uh, shifting sand. Sometimes in the middle of the night, we'd be bumping up against another boat. We'd have to get up and go through the rigmarole of put it, pulling in the anchor and resetting it. And so it was so nice when your anchor was firmly planted and your boat didn't move. You don't want your life anchored in good circumstances. You want your life anchored in the promises of God. Not a single promise of God is at risk during this pandemic. In our Bible text today, Jesus puts it this way. He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Think about that. The circumstance will indeed change. The whole world's going to end. But even that doesn't put my promises to you at risk. In fact, Jesus says, I have overcome the world and that even death itself cannot overcome you. Because death for the believer means transition to the presence of God. So, even during the midst of this coronavirus pandemic, the Christian can be full of hope, 
full of joy, full of peace. Because nothing that we have anchored our lives upon is at risk at all. The promises of God are still all yes for us in Jesus Christ. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Mark chapter 13. I know you have a Bible at home, so go get it. Mark chapter 13. We, have, uh, we are in a series on the Gospel of Mark. And I have to say, I wrestled a bit this week on whether I should kind of abandon our typical series and, and do something special. But as I studied Mark 13, I realized, no, there is a great word of encouragement for us right here in this chapter. So we're going to begin with the first four verses of Mark chapter 13. We read, And as he came out of the temple, Jesus, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And the temple mount in Jesus' day was one of the wonders of the world. It was impressive. It was wonderful. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. See all this beautiful temple? It will be destroyed. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew, four of the twelve apostles, asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? When's this going to happen? And how can we know it's about to happen? Why do they want to know when? Well, knowledge is power, right? If we know when the temple is going to be destroyed, then we can prepare. We can use our own wisdom and our own strength, and we can get ourselves ready to weather the crisis. And Jesus does not answer the when question. Certainly with not any particularity. He, he does say it's going to happen within this generation. So sometime within the next 40 years. That's not a very precise answer, right? And it did. About 40 years later in AD 70, the Romans uh, squashing a Jewish rebellion, conquered Jerusalem and utterly destroyed the temple. But Jesus says, hey, it's going to happen within this generation. Well, what does that mean? You can't really prepare for that. It meant that the disciples had to do two things. See, God could have told them when, but he didn't. Why? Because number one, it forced them to depend on God. They had to trust God. They had to trust that God is in control. They had to trust that God would take care of them in the midst of that great crisis and get them through it. And in fact, he did. Uh, the fourth century church father Eusebius tells us that God sent a prophet to the Christians before uh, Jerusalem fell and told them, it's coming, get out of town now. And they fled to Pella and uh, kind of rode out the fury of the Romans in Pella. So number one, not knowing 
when the crisis was going to come, forced them to trust God. Number two, it forced them to live always ready. And what did that mean for them? Well, it meant this. It meant that the disciples had to fully place their hope in Jesus and in his church and not in the temple with its sacrificial system or in the political uh, might and power of Israel. See, if, if their hope had been in the, in the Old Testament Jewish religious system or in the political power of Israel, they would have been crushed when the crisis came because it would have crushed where their hope was. But they had put their hope in Jesus and in the church. And even the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And the promises that Christ makes, they will last, outlast even heaven and earth itself. Well, in chapter 13, Jesus goes on to predict his second coming and the end of the world. And so we read uh, in verse, verses 24 to 27 this. But in those days after that tribulation, so some period of time after Jerusalem falls, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven. And the powers in the heaven will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the, four, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now, I don't know about you, but I am like the disciples, and I'm like, when's that going to happen? When is Jesus going to return? When's the world going to end? If I knew, I could prepare in my own strength and my own power. And maybe my pre preparation is, well, if I know when Christ is going to return, I'll just goof off until that gets close, and then I'll get serious about following him and doing what he wants me to do. Right? But Jesus does not answer the when question for us. In fact, he tells us in verse 32, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. If you ever encounter somebody who says, I know when the world's going to end, even if it's a Mayan calendar, or somebody who says, I know when Jesus is going to return, you may call them a liar because Jesus says no person knows. Not even the angels in heaven know. And then get this, nor the son. Jesus says, I don't even know the day or the hour I will return. At least while he was on earth, only the father. But only the father. Now get that, God the father does know. God knows when the world will end. He knows how it's going to end. In fact, he is driving history toward his predetermined conclusion which will result in his glory and the vindication of his saints. When it will once again be done on earth as it is in heaven. God the Father knows. He is fully in control. And he could have told us, but he doesn't. Why? Because he wants us to trust him and to stay always ready.
So what does trusting God mean? Well, it's trusting that he is in control of history. It's trusting that Jesus will return and that he will reward those who follow him. And what does it look like to be ready for Christ's return? Well, first off, it means be a Christian. Because when Jesus returns, the big buzzer gets slammed down and it's game over and no more time to decide whether you're for or against Jesus. The decision has already been made. And Jesus says the world will be divided into two camps, the sheep and the goats. And the sheep are the followers of Jesus and Jesus will say, come and enter into my rest. And the goats, depart from me, I never knew you, off into utter darkness, far from God, what the Bible calls hell. And so, you don't know when Jesus is coming back, and so you need to be ready now. And number one, that means be a Christian. Number two, to be ready means be on mission. Be doing what God has called you to do. When the master returns, he wants to find the servant's faithful. And that's what Jesus goes on to say here. Verse 33, be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you don't know when the master of the house will come. In the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And when I say, what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Jesus, the master, will return. And when he returns, we want him to find us faithfully going about the task that he has given to us. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're a servant of Jesus Christ, you have been given a work to do. Are you going about that? What is that? Well, last week in our, in our Bible study, we saw that all that God wants from us can be summarized in two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets are contained in this. What does God want from us? Love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love our neighbor as ourselves. Are we doing that? It, when Christ returns, will he find us faithful to that task? This is, a, this is a time to be loving our neighbors as ourselves. As, as fear is just uh, going rampant like a wildfire and people are uh, concerned for their own safety and the safety of, of the people that they love. Um, there can be all kinds of inward focus and all kinds of selfishness, and there can be hoarding, and there can be, I'm looking after me and mine. And this is a time for us as Christians to look not just after our own interests, but also the interests of others. This is a time for us to love our neighbors as ourselves. And so I have seven very practical ways that we can love our neighbors as ourselves during this coronavirus pandemic. Number one, pray for others. Pray for yourself, absolutely. Pray for God's protection and, and provision, but pray for other people. 
privately pray for them. Ask that God will take care of them, provide for them. Ask people, may I pray for you? And if they say yes, pray for them. And do it right on the, at the spot. Just say, hey, let's pray right now. And uh, ask them what their needs are. Lift those needs to the Lord. Pray that people will have their hearts open to God's love for them in Jesus Christ. Pray that he will keep them healthy, that he'll provide for them, that they will experience his peace as they put their trust in him moment by moment. Pray for people. That's a great act of love. Number two, share. God has given you stuff. And what you have might actually meet the real practical need of another person. So be willing to share. And number three, give. Now, what's the difference between sharing and giving? When I share, I expect it to come back to me at some point, right? If I lend you my car, please return it at some point. Uh, giving is, it's now yours. And I'll tell you, hoarding is what we do when we are motivated by fear. I have some surplus, but you know what? I might need that. Things could get bad, and, and I, I might need that surplus. And then you face a brother or a sister who has present need, and you're thinking, I've got surplus for the possible need. They've got current need, and giving is saying, I'm going to give you from my surplus. And that is an act of faith. Because you're saying, I'm going to trust that when the need becomes present in my life, God will provide for me. And when we do that out of faith, God sees that. He's pleased with it. And you better believe it. He will take care of us. Number four, embrace inconvenience for others. And uh, I speak here especially to those who are uh, low risk during this um, health crisis. You know what? You're being asked to take on limitations and be inconvenienced for the sake of other people. Boy, that seems to me like an opportunity to love our neighbors as ourselves. And you know what? If you do that out of love, God sees that. Credit it to your account. Number five, check in with people. Social distancing can become isolation. Now, if you've got a, like I do, I've got some teenage girls at home. They're tremendously entertaining. Uh, and so, you know, being quarantined with them for a short period of time doesn't sound that bad. But what if you're a single person and you're quarantined? What if you're widowed and you're quarantined? Boy, that can become isolation pretty fast. And so a way to love our neighbors is to check in with people, reach out. Please do more than texting. My dad would go crazy if all we did was text him. Telephone calls are much more personal. Video conferencing. um, You're giving people the freedom to take the conversation where they want to take it. And it means more. So check in with people, call them, video conference them. Uh, Number six, grieve with people. Hey, if this thing goes where many are predicting, um, there can be real loss that people experience. And a way to love our neighbor is to grieve with them, to share uh, in the the grieving process. And then finally, share your hope in Jesus. We have a hope the world does not have. Uh, We are... 
God doesn't say that we won't experience the same circumstances. Um, Christians get sick. Christians lose their jobs. Christians get poor. Uh, Christians die. But even though we face, even though we grieve death, we don't grieve it like those who have no hope. Because even death itself doesn't rob us from God's good future for us, right? Death is the final enemy, but Christ has overcome death, and death is simply translation to life everlasting with God who loves us. And so we can share our hope with other people and just say, look, it's scary, but we don't have to be afraid. We can anchor our lives in in the love of God for us. Heidi Hedberg is uh, one of our own, and she's the director of public health for the state of Alaska. And, and I have watched Heidi for a number of years. She and her team, they prepare while things are at peace, while there's no crisis, they prepare for the crisis. And then when the crisis comes, and here it has, they're ready. And you know what? As Christians, uh, many Christians have been training for decades They've been training how to trust God and how to be faithful to the task that he's given him, given us. And, and here we are, now it's a time of crisis, and you know what? That training is paying off. And there are many Christians who recognize, I am equipped better than so many others to handle this situation. It might be that even as a Christian, you are saying, oh my goodness, this crisis is revealing to me that I've been placing too much hope in things other than God. This is revealing some, uh, some value, uh, misplaced values that I have. And, and you might be a little startled by what this crisis is revealing about your, your faith or lack thereof. But you know what? It's never too late to start responding with faith to the crisis. The Apostle James tells us this. He says, count it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. Because the trial responded to in faith will mature you spiritually. You can't change the past. But here you are in the midst of a crisis. You can respond to the crisis with faith. And so you just have to ask yourself, what is the faith response right now to this decision I have to make, to this situation I'm in, to this fear that's rising up? What is the faith response? And you know, James goes on in verse 5 of chapter 1, and he says, If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously and without finding fault, it will be given to him. God will answer that question. He'll tell you what the faith response is, and then do it. And what you will find is you will find that you are growing as a Christian. And that's a beautiful thing. And actually that turd makes some, some lemonade out of this difficult trials that we find ourselves in. So here you are, you're at home. But the Lord has been speaking to you through his word and through me, his servant, and I want to give you just a moment to respond. To declare to the Lord, I trust you. To recommit yourself to being faithful.
to go about the task that he's given you, even in the midst of the crisis. To walk, to respond to this crisis by faith. Do that for just a few moments, and then I'll pray over us. Heavenly Father, I find that in this crisis, the beauty of the gospel just shines brighter. It is so apparent to me that our hope is grounded in the unchangeable things, the unshakable things. I am so thankful that my sense of well-being as a follower of Christ is not shaken by even a world pandemic, Lord, Because I am confident that though heaven and earth pass away, my words will never pass away, Jesus says. Your promises to us are sure. We root our hope, our sense of well-being in your promises. We love you. Thank you for your truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.